morning is today we enter into officially the first part of Romans. If you have your Bible, you are welcome to turn there. And as you do, I want to take you back in your own thought world to about so long ago now, 70 years ago, so give or take a few. You're, you've been enveloped for years in a, in a war that seems unending. The death toll, not in the hundreds or thousands or millions, but tens of millions of people around the world have died because of this war. Imagine hearing the news, victory at last. The peace cord is signed. For decades, if you were, say, a British citizen living under the threat of Nazi Germany or France, the news that it was finally over would have swept across your life in a way that we can't even psychologically really imagine in our day. Because we've never been through that kind of grueling, exhausting, earth-shattering, and truly life-threatening war like they had. And so, of course, you can go back in time and you can see the newspaper clippings and the pictures of celebrations that break out around the world as World War II is officially over. For the Jews in Germany, the end of the war was not just a nice idea. It was a reality, right? It was a huge reality for them. It meant the end of the Holocaust. If you were Chinese and you had been living for years under the brutality of the Japanese Empire, the end of the war was not just about a nice set of ideas. It, was, it meant that your life was finally going to improve. It was going to be changed. That something real had happened. You see, I start with that because, as I said a few uh, weeks back when I preached on Romans 1, 16 and 17, is so often when we open up the book of Romans, we, we think that, okay, I'm going to download a set of ideas. Here's what Christians believe, and here's how I can make sure that I have the right ideas and develop in the ideas of the gospel and of theology. And I'm here to tell you that, as we'll see this morning, if that's your thinking when you go to Romans, you're, you're, you are on a completely different page than Paul and the early Christians. Because you, as, as we'll see this morning, when Paul talks about the gospel, he's not just talking about a set of ideas that, hey, here's some ideas that if you believe these, it'll make your life really good. Here's some ideas that if you believe them, I promise you, you'll get eternal life. Here's some philosophical points that if you, if you live according to them, it will go well with you. For Paul and the early Christians, the gospel was a declaration of the victory of God over sin and death and, and evil. Amen? It was a declaration of victory. God has won. In fact, I shared then that the word gospel itself, as, as, I'll, as we'll see here in a minute, is not a Christianized word. It was not a word that referred just, you know, that had this like Christian lingo to it. I know that in our day and age, we don't really hear the word gospel in everyday, in everyday life because it's, it comes from English and it's just not a normal word we use. But the original word in Greek, euangelion, simply meant good news. I have good news to share. 
It was not a word that was overtly associated with religion and certainly not with Christianity before uh, the early Christians began to use it to talk about the news of Jesus Christ. So when they talked about the good news of Jesus Christ, they were not talking in what we might say is Christianese or in some weird theological language that was foreign to people. They, in fact, as we'll see here in a few minutes, were using a word that was all over the Roman world. It was a word that was ubiquitous in the Roman world. Euangelion, good news. So if you have your Bible, please open it to Romans chapter 1. Today we'll be looking at verses 1 to 4. Romans begins this way. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God and power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now when I said about preparing this sermon, you know, I gave these passages to, uh, to Carter weeks ago. And I, I went back to look at, okay, so you know, what, what, what am I preaching on again? What, what verses is it? And I said, oh, only four verses? Really, Jonathan? You, you can't make a little bit more? You're going to make a whole sermon out of four verses? And then I started developing the sermon. And I go, oh my gosh, I need to break this down more. So buckle up, because we're going to have a lot of fun this morning. I'm excited as we dive into these first four verses. The first word, obviously, is Paul. Who is Paul? I assume most of you know are not familiar with the life of the Apostle Paul. If not, you can certainly go read in the book of Acts how Paul, as, and this will become important as you read, uh, read Romans, how Paul was a Jew. Ethnically speaking, he was a Jew. And also, religiously speaking, that was his heritage. He grew up Jewish. And of course, Jesus is Jewish. And our faith as Christians is, is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. They, the early believers thought of themselves as the fulfillment of God's promises to the Jews as we looked at last week, right? We looked at that last week with Abraham and Genesis 15. The early Christians did not think of themselves as a separate religion. They thought of themselves as, as inheriting all the promises that God had given to the Israelites and now fulfilled through Jesus Christ. So Paul is a Jew. He's not only a Jew, he was trained to be a Pharisee. I know most of you know this, but a Pharisee was the best equivalent today would be a pastor in the Jewish world. They, they were the ones who were actively out there ministering and teaching. There are other groups too, but they were the most ubiquitous group ministering and teaching among the people all of the scriptures and how to apply them to their life. But back then, we might not think that's such a big deal today, but back then, being trained to be a Pharisee meant that Paul had spent an enormous amount of time immersed in the Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And again, that might not seem like a big deal to you and I. We have the Internet, we have phones, we can look up information all over the place, but that was different back then. Very few people got an education in the Roman world. That was a privilege. On top of that, the Pharisees did not take education of the Scriptures lightly. Paul would have spent thousands upon thousands of hours studying the scriptures and they didn't have the the luxuries that we have of books everywhere and internet so the, the main way they studied it is by memorizing it okay the apostle paul and we'll see this in romans he could have dominated any scripture memory competition ever given ever he would have he would win first prize easily no chuckles there it's okay 
Um, he, had, he had whole chunks and possibly even whole books or whole uh, sections of scriptures like Isaiah probably memorized. He knew the scriptures in the Old Testament backwards and forwards in a way that none of us could even imagine. That's what he did morning and evening, day after day as a Pharisee. And so when he gets converted, it's not just something new. Paul goes and he spends time in the desert for years going back and looking at all these scriptures that he's starting to learn. And God begins to show him all the ways that Jesus, the Messiah, was promised and foretold in the scriptures. And Romans is going to show so much of the fruit of that labor. That's who Paul is. God called Paul to be, not, not only did God convert Paul, and, and you, you mostly know that story, God called him to be an apostle, and he called him specifically to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And that made him a quite controversial figure, even in the early church. I know that we love Paul, right? Everyone today loves the apostle Paul. We think he's the ba- most amazing, coolest, awesomest guy ever. That's not how a lot of Christians in the first century thought of Paul. They thought of him as a troublemaker. He was controversial because there were a lot of early Christians, who, mainly whose background was Jewish, who were not so on board with the so-called Gentile mission. Meaning they were not really sure if God really wanted them to bring in Gentiles into the church. And if they did, well then they need to make them Jewish. Okay, well, maybe, Paul, I'll grant you the point, maybe Gentiles should be allowed into the church. But if they do, they need to be circumcised, they need to follow our rules, they need to become essentially Jewish. Paul said no. And not just him, but if you go read Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council, the leaders, Peter and James and others of the Jerusalem church, prayed, counseled, and agreed with Paul and others that it was not God's will that non-Jewish converts to Jesus should adopt Jewish customs. That was a radical decision in the early church. I mean, if you understood the context, it blows your mind. So Paul is a controversial figure. Even after that decision, there were still lots of people not very happy with Paul and what he was doing. So he is, he is a, a, an apostle to the Gentiles, as we'll see in a few, in a few verses later what that means. That, uh, in, in terms of practical, practical terms, he, he spent most of his time ministering outside of the Jewish diaspora, the Jewish world. He did preach the gospel to Jews, but he also was going into lots of Greek cities and converting non-Jews uh, to follow Jesus, where the God was through him. So that's Paul, and here he says, I am a servant of Christ Jesus. He says it right here. But I don't want to just blow through these terms because the word servant sounds really nice in our language. But it actually, in Greek, it is doulos. It is the term used for a slave. It is not a term of honor or respect. You don't go around the Roman world going, hey, I'm a doulos, everybody. That is not, this is not a title that you just throw out there like, I'm a doctor. Right? For him to call himself a servant of Christ Jesus, on its own, that term is not a term that gives you a lot of honor, class, reputation. And we're going to see here at the end the significance of it. But the fact that Paul, the apostle, would identify himself first and foremost as a servant tells us a lot about the character of the apostle. Because this is a term 
as he's writing to the church in Rome, is not a term that immediately demands respect. It is actually a term that shows, first and foremost, I am not my own master, I serve someone else. Paul wants to make it very clear that everything he's about to say and talk about about his ministry, it's not about him. That his whole calling, as we'll see as we read Romans, is directed at and rooted in service to another. Now, I don't know about you all, but the human ego is a pretty powerful thing. And Paul could have a lot of boasting and bragging rights. His life was very difficult. He was not very rich. But in the Christian world, who else was doing what he was doing? Who else was God using to plant churches and, and to, to see uh, non-Jews come to faith and, and, and as an apostle, all the authority that comes with that? So we see here, when he calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus, we already see a huge um, implication of all the theology that Paul talks about. It matters in his life. How he thinks of himself, first and foremost, is as a servant of Christ Jesus. Now this word, I know I've already said that a lot, but this word Christ, most of you are familiar with it. It is the term Christos in Greek, and it means Messiah. For if you want to have this, and if you want to read it the way that the early church would have understood it, it's Paul, a servant of Messiah Jesus. That's how they understood this term. It was not, not see, the word Christ gets so used and so uh, common that we, we even almost use it as the surname of Jesus. But in the early church, when they saw this word, they thought Messiah. A servant of Messiah Jesus. Now, that, that, that's okay. That's a declaration already, Paul's saying, that the Messiah has come. And that's a significant announcement. Because the Jews, for hundreds and thousands of years, have been looking forward to the Messiah. Ever since, as I even said, even with Abraham in Genesis 15 in the Exodus account, and even all the way back to Adam and Eve, there was this promise that God was going to send a deliverer. And over thousands of years, the Jews were more and more looking forward to the Messiah. Now I know this word Messiah, I don't want to overwhelm you all with too much information, but Messiah is a Hebrew word that means anointed one. Anointed one. So this word Christ here, in, in, in the original concept, means the anointed one. Because the Messiah was the one who was going to be anointed to be God's servant, to be God's deliverer. And that's a significant, uh, in, in the Hebrew mind, that's a significant concept. Let's say, um, let's say Kenny and I were in the Old Testament Israel. And we both said, hey, I'm king. God wants me to be king. Woo, follow me. He said, no, God wants me to be king. Follow me. How do the people know which one is telling the truth? How do they discern God's will? Because God, usually through prophets, told the people, I'm anointing that person. I'm anointing Kenny to be the next king. In other words, the anointing of God was viewed by the people to be God's declaring, who is the chosen one that I have raised up to be my servant? You can't just claim to be the Lord's anointed. You don't get that right. This is not a democracy, right? You don't get to say, I'm going to be the Lord's anointed. God chooses the one who will be his anointed one, who will be his Messiah, who will be his deliverer. 
So when, when he says the Messiah, Jesus, he is saying that God has sent the anointed one. And Paul has been called to be his messenger. The best way to understand how, how, how the Jews would have, would, have, would, have, would have thought of this concept, and if you have your Bible, you're welcome to turn there, is Psalm chapter 2. You see, this is where we get the idea of what it means to be the Messiah. There are lots and lots of scriptures, of course, that speak to it, but here's one that is very relevant for the rest of these verses that we will look at. In Psalm 2, this is God speaking. He says, I will tell of the decree. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And in verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This psalm and many other places show us what the Jews understood about what it meant to be the Lord's anointed. To be the king in Israel was not just a political position. It was, you understood it to be that God had anointed this person, selected them to rule over God's people in such a way that they would cultivate faithfulness to God. That was the calling of, a, um, of the anointed one, of the king. So when Paul announces here that he is a servant of the Messiah, he is announcing that the Messiah has come and his name is Jesus. Now I'm going to move on just for the sake of time. He says he was called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. As I've already said, this word gospel here is not just a set of ideas. It is the announcement that God has sent the Messiah. And as we'll see throughout Romans, specifically that he has sent the Messiah, that the Messiah died for the sins of God's people, that he rose from the dead again, and he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. That is, in a nutshell, what the gospel proclaimed. That God has sent the Messiah. That he came. That he died on the cross for the sins of God's people that they might be atoned for. That they might be redeemed. And that God's people, those who believe in him, might be forgiven of their sins, united with Jesus, and given the promise of eternal life that they will inherit when Jesus returns. So that is the gospel in a nutshell. But what I want you to hear and to see is that this word is it's the announcement of something that's been done, something that's been achieved, that's been accomplished. God has done this. Paul says, verse 2, what he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So I'm going to pass pretty quickly through this first because I think most of you are familiar with it. But what Paul wants people to understand is that the coming of the Messiah and all of his work is not something that was completely new or, un- or un- unexpected. It was what God had been promising, as we saw last week, even with, when he called Abraham, that God had been promising to send the Deliverer, the Messiah, for ever since he, he made that covenant with Israel. He had in mind that he was going to bring the Messiah through Israel. And all throughout Romans, we will see over and over and over how the Old Testament points to and fulfills God's covenant promises to Israel and ultimately to Adam and to Eve. 
So these promises, verse 3, are concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh. Now this is a verse I do want to slow down for a minute. The first thing is when he says concerning his son, there's a lot going on there. A lot that you and I may not pick up on right away. You see, one of the things that's, that's uh, so awesome about Scripture is that it's memorable. And we remember, especially in the Gospel of John, how over and over Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God. Does he not? I do my Father's will. He sent me. I'm the Son. So when we see in verse 3 here concerning his Son, we immediately jump to, in our minds, the Gospel of John, Jesus as the Son of God, as a reference to his divine nature and his position as the second person in the Trinity. However, what I hope, that, I hope I show you here in just a minute is that when Paul uses this phrase here, and he's talking about the sonship of Jesus, the Jews understood it in multiple ways, not just in reference to his divinity. And you cannot appreciate the rest of Romans or even these verses here if you don't understand what Paul means when he talks about Jesus being the Son of God. If you look back at Psalm 2 that I just showed you, which is a psalm pointing to the Messiah, the Anointed One, how does God refer to that person? He calls him his son. Now keep in mind, when God originally gave that to the, to the Israelites, and at that time when he wrote Psalm 2, they had no concept that we, have today, do, we do today of the Trinity. Jesus had not come yet. And the way prophecy works is that, that original psalm was about a Davidic king. It was about a Davidic king. It was probably originally about David himself. How can God call David his son? You see, we don't want to flatten Scripture and just say, like, yes, we can look at that and see it pointing to Jesus. But, but when God originally gave the, that inspiration for a psalm to and other places, and he's identifying, for example, David as the son, what does he mean by that? Why is he calling him his son? Because the term son was not just about, you know, in, in, in the language of the Hebrews, and they're saying not just about biological descent, it also referenced the anointed one. That his, his relationship to God, God would call him his son. So in Psalm 2, God is referring to the king as his son. It is, for, better, for lack of a better word, it is covenantal language. It is familial, familial language that speaks to the unique position of the covenant king as being near and dear to God's heart. And so when... Uh, Paul here in verse 3 talks about concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. He is using Davidic language. He's using kingship language. Why does David even come in here? If we're talking about the divinity of Jesus, why even bring in David? Because the Jews understood that when you talk about being the son of God, you're also talking about God's covenant promises to David. And what were those promises? That, uh, that his descendant would sit on the throne forever. God told David that your offspring, your descendant, will inherit your throne and your throne will rule forever. So here when he's talking about uh, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, the original audience would have picked up on this, this language about kingship, about rulership, about victory. 
Because, as we'll see at the end here, the language about victory and kingship that Paul is using is gives great reason for these people to rejoice in what God has done. So concerning his son, who was ascended from David according to the flesh. And then verse 4, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now this verse is a little confusing because what does Paul mean that Jesus was declared to be the son of God? What does that mean exactly? Well, this word that's translated as declared in our Bibles, actually in, in the Greek, almost always, not almost, always in the New Testament means appointed. Appointed. And, and, and it gets back to that language of being anointed. So in the Greek, it actually says, if you were to translate it more straightforwardly, and he was appointed to be the Son of God in power. So why don't our Bibles say that? If all throughout the New Testament, the sense is appointed, like I'm going to appoint someone to a task, right? I'm going to appoint you to do this, or I'm going to appoint you to a position. Why does that, why does that word not used here? Why does it use the word declared? Quite frankly, because they, they, they want to avoid the possibility of heresy. Because if you talk about Jesus being appointed the Son of God, what do we all think? That he wasn't the Son of God, and then God said, okay, I'm not going to appoint you to that position. And so, and so the Bible translators, want to, they don't want to confuse us because the language of the Son of God in the Gospel of John, for example, gets used to speak to Jesus' divinity. They don't want to confuse us and have us reading and that Jesus was appointed to be the Son of God in power. Because that on its own can make us think he wasn't the Son of God, he wasn't divine, and then God made him divine. And by the way, there's a lot of heresy that adopts that belief in the early church. Why do you think we read the Nicene Creed? Why is there a Nicene Creed? Because the divinity of Jesus was not something that everyone was on board with in the early church. Begotten, not made. The reason why we have the Nicene Creed is because there were people that said Jesus was an ordinary guy and then he got promoted to being God. And that was a concept that everyone in the ancient world was used to. Everyone was used to the idea that you have, you, know, you have a Hercules or you have a Thor or whatever. You have some person right, who's kind of a god. They were used to that idea. So, so the, uh, the translators in our Bibles, they don't want us to be confused. And so they translate the word declared. But it, it actually means he was appointed to be the Son of God in power. Now why is that significant? Because as I said to you already, the Son of God here, Paul is not using it primarily to speak to Jesus' divinity. He will do that in a minute, and we'll see that. But here he's using it primarily to speak to Jesus as the Messiah King. And that is so critical. You might think that's not a big deal, but it is. Because when you start telling people in the ancient world the Messiah King has been appointed by God to be... um, Well, I'm jumping ahead. When he says he's been appointed the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, you are making some really big claims about what God is doing in the world. In other words, what I want you to see is the Son of God being the Messiah King has a lot of implications for how we live our lives. You may not think that, because these are words that we don't think about a lot. But what Paul is declaring is that God's Messiah is, is now 
God, the, 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 is now the ruler of God's people. God's Messiah, Jesus, is now the ruler of God's people. And how does he rule? Paul says, in power. The, if you have a Bible or whatever you're using, circle, underline, highlight that phrase, Son of God in power. Because what Paul wants us to understand is, that, and, and as we'll see throughout, Jesus came in weakness, did he not? He came in weakness. He came vulnerable. He came, he subjected himself, as Philippians 2 says, unto death. But that's not how Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus did not rise up in weakness. He did not rise up in vulnerability. He did not rise up as someone um, like any other. He rose up in power. If you look back at Psalm 2 and you read that psalm, that's the idea that Paul is talking about here. That Jesus has now risen from the dead and he now reigns as God's Messiah King over God's people. And he says he was raised in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So to be clear, uh, Paul's resurrection is, uh, sorry, when Paul talks about his resurrection here, he's not saying that Jesus' resurrection is proof of his divinity. Jesus himself raised Lazarus from the dead. Being raised from the dead on its own is not proof of Jesus' divinity. The manner of his resurrection is proof not only of his divinity, but also of his uh, status now as the king over God's people. Because his resurrection was in power, meaning it was in glory. It was, it was a glorified resurrection. And it was done according to the spirit of holiness. So what we will see throughout this letter is Paul proclaiming the work of the Messiah. But what I want you to see as we, as we dive in here is that it, it's a message, it's a gospel with teeth. Because it tells believers not just a set of ideas. It announces what God has done through his Messiah King. And this has huge implications for us for today. So I want to I highlight a couple of things. First of all, I can get there in my notes here. First of all, political allegiances. When Paul talks about Jesus being the Son of God, it is not only language that ties back into the Old Testament and that ties back into the idea of the covenant king. It is also language, as I said at the beginning, that was very ubiquitous in the Roman world to refer to the Roman emperor. All throughout the Roman Emperor, uh, all, all of the Roman Empire, were all kinds of um, marketing, <laughs> I guess, marketing. Uh, you know what do you call those uh, events, or how do you call it? You know, uh, statues, um, all kinds of marketing, proclaiming the divinity of the emperor. Here's a few examples: Julius Caesar, who lived from 48 uh, to 44 BC, or he was sorry, he reigned from 48 to 44 BC. There's an inscription in Ephesus. Describes Julius Caesar as, quote, the manifest God from Ares and Aphrodite and universal Savior of human life. Now that word, Savior, is not 
that would be the same word that they would use to talk about Jesus. Okay? Universal Savior of human life. Here's another description about Julius Caesar. The Carthian people honor the God and Emperor and Savior of the inhabited world, Gaius Julius Caesar, son of Gaius Caesar. The, the next Caesar, after him, Augustus Caesar, who ruled uh, from 30 B.C. to 14 A.D., during Jesus' birth. Uh, Emperor Caesar Augustus, son of God. Emperor Caesar Augustus, God from God. Emperor Caesar Augustus, Savior and Benefactor. The next emperor, Tiberius Caesar. Emperor Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of God. Emperor Tiberius Caesar, new Augustus, son of God, Zeus the Liberator. And then lastly, Nero, from 54 to 68 AD, he ruled. Nero Caesar, the Lord. Nero Claudius Caesar, the savior and benefactor of the inhabited world. The good God of the inhabited world, the beginning and existence of all good things, the son of the greatest of the gods, and Nero, the Lord of the whole world. What I want you to see is that when Paul is declaring Jesus to be the Son of God, he's definitely tying in to the Old Testament ideas of the Messiah King. And he's also tying into the idea of Jesus' divine nature and all that Jesus said about that. And he's also rejecting or subverting all of the Roman claims to absolute power. The early Christians, the, 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 the agenda of God's kingdom is never directly political. Meaning, they're never, the agenda is never to overthrow a government or to establish a political rule, but it is always going to subvert the, the, the uh, sinful, satanic desires of almost every government to claim absolute God power for themselves. And that's, what is, and that's why the church has, one reason why the church has always been persecuted around the world. Individual believers are, you know, humble, meek, ordinary people. Why do governments hate them so much? Because the satanic power of the world sets itself up against God. And these quotes here, by Caesars, yeah, I mean, you know, the Caesars claim this, but what king hasn't claimed this throughout history in some fashion or another? So when Paul declares uh, the good news of, uh, of Jesus, the Messiah, and that he's the Son of God, they would have, and, and who's he writing to? People in Rome. Do <laughs> you think they hear this language all the time? I'm pretty sure they do. I'm pretty sure it's everyone, every corner in Rome. What I want you to see is that faith in Jesus and the gospel proclaiming his, his kingship over God's people and over the cosmos has massive implications in everyday life for us. Because all of us are political animals. All of us want to turn to, are tempted to turn to a politician or a ruler or some strong person who's going to fix everything. And this declaration that Jesus is the Son of God is a, is a statement to us that our focus, our trust, our reliance is to be upon Jesus and not upon Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Obama, any, any of them, or anybody ever. That we, are, we can certainly vote and do that, but the minute we start putting our hope on those people, we are denying the gospel.
That's my point I'm trying to make. Is that the minute we start putting our hope in Donald Trump, in Joe Biden, in whomever else, we are actually, by, by, by default, denying the gospel. We, may, we can say all the right words. We can check the whole Westminster Confession of Faith. But if we are so invested in a politician that, that, that we think they're going to fix the problems and we, and we are eating all that stuff up all the time, then we are denying the gospel that says Jesus reigns as Lord and King. That, that kingdom is to be our kingdom. His business is to be our business. We are to carry on faithfully day after day, regardless of what clown is in the White House or in, or in uh, Beijing or in any other capital of the world. We are to carry on the business of proclaiming the victory of Jesus that is not just an idea, it is real. It is real. So let me encourage you, and this is a message that we need today. I would encourage you to put almost all political stuff in the garbage. Because whether they're right, left, up, or down, almost all of it is ungodly. Almost all of those people deny Jesus Christ and his resurrection. You can certainly gain some insight. I, I, obviously, vote wisely. Vote uh, according to, to God's will. And, and we hope and pray that God will, will, will bless our nation with righteousness. But don't ever, ever please Tie your life and your heart into politics. Because you will, you will de facto deny the gospel. Because it will lead you to inevitably to live with, I'm jumping ahead, to live with all kinds of fears, anxieties, and worries, and looking to that person to, to, save, to, to fix it. Secondly, power. Far too many believers think that they can serve the Lord Jesus' kingdom using Caesar's methods. Far too many believers think that they can serve the Lord Jesus' kingdom and the Lord Jesus using Caesar's methods. What I mean by that is this. Jesus, Paul declares, uh, it was appointed by God to be... Um, to, uh, sorry, to be raised from the resurrection of the dead, appointed to be the Son of God in power. But how did he get there? Did he come on earth? I mean, he could have zapped everyone in a second. He could have, he could have decimated uh, Palestine. When the Jews slap him, he could have fried all of Palestine in a second with a meteorite, like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. His path to victory what was the path of the cross. So often Christians want the path to victory without the cross. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How did Jesus get exalted? What was his path of exaltation? It was the cross. 
When we read this declaration in Romans 1 that God has won, that victory has happened, it is a victory that was achieved through the cross. And so often we as believers, myself included in my heart, we hate the cross. We want the sword. We want the sword. And so we reject the cross. We pick up the sword, as Peter did, thinking that by doing so we will achieve victory for God. And church history is riddled with millions of examples, thousands of examples of that very thing. It is not a joke. And when people get so involved in politics, I guarantee that's one of the first temptations is pick up the sword. We're going to achieve God's victory with the sword. You can only achieve victory in service to God through the cross. And that's why it's significant that um, you know, I, uh, in Philippians, where, where Paul talks about Jesus becoming a servant unto death, how does Paul identify himself? A servant of God. You see, Paul understood that you serve the master the way the master himself lived. You cannot serve God and, and reject all the ways that Jesus himself lived. So brothers and sisters, if we want to see God working through us, if we want to see the victory of the, of the resurrection of Christ making a difference in our lives around us and in the world around us, we have one way to do it, and that's the cross. That is the way that we will see God uh, exercise His kingdom power in and through us in the world around us. That means suffering. It means hardship. It means selflessness. It means all kinds of things. And I would, I would suggest this, that more often than not, the people that God is working through the most are the people that we don't even notice. Because God's ways are not our ways. We think, if God's at work, we're going to get a big church. If God's at work, you're going to get a lot of money. If God's at work, people are going to write all about it on the websites. Because that's the way, in our foolish minds, that's the sword. That's the victory that we think God is going to do. But if God accomplished victory through Jesus through the cross, you think anyone cared when Jesus died apart from a few ragtag disciples? No, he was just a laughingstock. There's a lot, there are a lot of laughingstocks in the world that will be shown in glory, have served God in a powerful way in their lives because they, they followed the way of the cross. Finally, third application is fear. There's a, a popular tale. Uh, no one really knows where it came from. Some attribute to the Cherokee Indians. Uh, a young man is wrestling with a big internal conflict. And his grandfather tells him, there are two wolves waging a war inside us all. One is doubt, fear, envy, self-pity, anger, pride, and lies. The other is truth, peace, joy, love, hope, kindness, generosity, and so forth. And the grandson asks, well, which one wins? And the grandfather says, whichever one you feed. Now, that's not a biblical thing, but there's a good biblical um, allegory there, a principle there that ties directly into this message. We get to have a choice in our lives. Do we feed our fear and worry and anxiety and doubt by in, in, investing and ingesting all of the bad news, all of the, the hard things, all of the the, the, the reality of the fallen world around us and we're just eating that and eating that and eating that and feeding those, that, that wolf inside of us, the one that's full of fears and doubts and worries? 
Or are we feeding our souls and our hearts on the gospel day in and day out and therefore strengthening our hope, strengthening our joy, strengthening our love? You have a choice and I have a choice. Is the gospel going to be what we will feed our souls? Because there is a choice. And if you say, well, and if you, and if you think you don't have to make that choice, then you have made a choice and it's the wrong one. Christians who think they can just go through life not really worried about things, they will be feeding on all the things that will give their, their souls cause to have fear and worry and doubt and all the rest. And I'm not saying that the Christian life is just, you know, Pollyanna walking down the street. If you're following the way of the cross, you will have real causes to fear, real causes to worry, real burdens to bear. But if you're feeding your soul through the proclamation that God has sent his son, that he died for our sins on the cross, that he rose from the dead, that he now reigns in victory over the earth, and you're feeding your soul that, then you will have a completely different disposition. I learned a, different, I learned a new word yesterday. I've seen the word before, but never really, you know, never really learned it. Misanthrope. Mis, mis, misanthropi, misanthrope uh, misanthropy. There we go. Um... Mis misanthropy and cynicism. I think too many of us believers could be described with those terms. Misanthropy is sort of a general hatred of humanity, general dislike of, it's just complaining about things all the time, and people especially. Cynicism, how many of us walk around with that disposition? And I think we are the bearers of the most incredible news in the world. It's not news that, that, like I said, it's Pollyanna that denies the reality of the world, but it is a news that transforms the world. You see, not only was Paul announcing, I'm, I'm closing with this, not only was Paul's announcement of Jesus as, as the resurrected Savior, not only is that itself the content, a declaration that God has risen from the dead, but the fact when, when Paul announces the gospel, God actually works and he brings about the fruit of the gospel, meaning that when the gospel is proclaimed that Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead, God uses that act of proclamation through the Spirit to actually fulfill what the gospel achieved. People coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And so brothers and sisters, please let us not be known as people who are misanthropic and cynical and doubting all the time and grumpy. I'm not saying we can't have hardships and worries and fears. But underneath those things should be the bedrock of what God has done for us. Let me pray. Dear God, I thank you so much for the gospel. Lord, all of us at one time were lost. Even if we were raised in the church, we can all identify a time where we just really didn't have any idea what was going on. And yet you proved faithful to us in that at some point in time, you, through a servant that you selected, Proclaim the gospel to us that you sent your son Jesus and that he died for our sins on the cross and that he rose from the dead and that if we believe in him we can have eternal life and fellowship with you and forgiveness of sins. And God, this gospel, as Paul will say uh, next week as we'll see, is going forth into all the world. Help us to be gospel people who live and enjoy and enjoy our lives with the good news of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.